What's going on? It's Joey Thurman, and welcome to Season 3 of the Fad or Future Podcast. Yeah, I made it three seasons. What's different about this season? Well, yes, I'm still bringing you the world's top experts in fitness, nutrition, mental health, and more. But I'm also talking about my own personal struggles. I get deeper this season because we can all use a little bit of relatability. So I hope you stick with me, you enjoy this season, and thank you for being here. And as always, you get to decide, is it a fad or is it a future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties, F-A-D-D-Y. Hashtag don't be a fatty. What's up? It's Joey Thurman. Here's another episode of the Fatter Future podcast. And is too much information enough information? Do we not have enough? Bill Willis, researcher, PhD, overall smart guy. You actually work out. You're a scientist. You're one of the researchers for examine.com. What's up, man? Busy week. It's going good. Nice to see you. Uh, well, I appreciate you being here. I know you're really busy. You're you're in a um, a well lit, lit conference room right now uh, <laughs> at, at work. Anybody listening to this, he looks great. Very attractive man. The lighting's perfect. Um, so, Bill at OSU, what's your your main gig? What do you do every day? Well, I'm a research scientist, so uh, I, I do research 100. Um, percent And what I'm working on right now, I'm, I'm really interested in is don't want to go too much down the rabbit hole with this, but I'm interested in mechanisms that break self-tolerance uh, for autoimmunity. I kind of stumbled into that field, to be honest with you, but I'm working on how uh, injury and the stress response, uh, particularly in autoimmune diseases, um, causes the body to uh, just, you know, kind of freak out and the immune system to start targeting self-proteins. So, Um, that's what I spend, uh, spend my days on these days (laughs) over here at Ohio state. (laughs) That's, that's pretty crazy. That's that's great. So it's, you're like, uh, I'm just studying creatine today. Um, (laughs) well, yeah, I could certainly just dump creatine onto a, onto a cell culture. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I, uh, for my PhD, which I did at Ohio state also, uh, I became, well, I was interested in, in fibrosis and the heart and the lungs. And to make a really long story short, I I studied this cross-linking enzyme called transglutaminase. And actually, uh, you know, somebody asked me what I work and I don't really want to talk about it. Just drop transglutaminase and it's an instant conversation stopper. (laughs) So you you can borrow that if you want. Yeah, I'm sure uh, you're great at parties. Hey, yeah, became really interested in this cross-linking enzyme. Um, It's calcium activated. So there's... I mean, there's a muscle aspect there. It's active in, in muscle tissue only during stress. Um, and muscle is a little bit different because, you know, when a muscle contracts, the cytosol just floods with calcium that triggers the contraction. And, you know, you have calcium just oscillating all the time in muscle tissue. And then, you know, in other cells, it's a little more uh, steady state. So I became real interested in that. And uh, I said I was going to make a long story short. Um, as I was finishing up my... Uh, my PhD uh, thesis in, in that area, um, one uh, researcher that was on my uh, dissertation committee was working with the lab that I am in now. And uh, they uh, they had found that this pro-inflammatory uh, protein uh, called HMGB1 mm-hmm. um, seemed to be cross-linked by my cross-linking enzyme. And I, I was semi-obsessed with covalent protein cross-linking at the time. And 
so long story short, I joined the lab and, and I found that uh, this cross-linking interaction, I'm, I'm investigating that as a possible mechanism uh, by which the immune system breaks tolerance to, you know, to your own self proteins. So it's wow. quite a journey. <clears throat> yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure your days are, you know, more than just um, looking down a microscope where I, I think a, a lot of people, <laughs> uh, you know, might conclude if they're hearing researcher, right? Uh, yeah, there's a little of that. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, I guess that carries with it, you know, you, the, the lab rat, mentality and there's a lot of lab rats scurrying around the halls <laughs> I, I suppose I, I I'm in that camp now um, but on the at, you know by the same token um, I, I guess what really brought me to, to scientific research was you know early on I just wanted to figure out what supplements to take and and how to train you know, uh, to keep improving and, and getting bigger and stronger I mean in high school I played football I was a I was a little guy and, uh, you know, just always had to fight for, for every ounce of weight gained. Um, as I got into my twenties, it was much easier to gain muscle, but back then, um, you know, I, early on, I just tried to take, you know, for what, for the information available, a really scientific approach to training and diet and nutrition and had some excellent mentors, you know, along the way, a strength coach in high school was really science-based, uh, guy when, when it came to putting together workouts and, and really, uh, I, it was really the fitness aspect uh, that uh, that set me on a trajectory to do science later. So okay. I think there's a lot of uh, people kind of in the in the fitness and training space that um, that are have like an, another foot in the science field. Also, it seems to be more common today. Yeah. Either that, or they were always out there, and uh, now we just know about them because of social media <laughs> and the yeah. internet and whatnot. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember back in college, you know, even then, you know, it was kind of my coach uh, on the hockey team. He would just hand us a program that was written up in like a, a men's health or something. And this is back in yeah. you know, 2001, 2002. Look, like, wait a minute. Every position, we're getting the same workout plan. And yeah, uh, yeah. for me, I talked about uh, this on the pre-interview with you. Like I was having KFC and Dairy Queen because I just need 6,000 <laughs> calories to get on the ice. Like big, 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 big. Spent three hours in the gym, five hours on the ice. And it was just probably a lot too much. And I, I remember you say that um, with the bodybuilding community and the, the science correlation, there was a uh, professor I had, I don't, can't remember what he was specifically, but he was a bodybuilder and he was mm -hmm. jacked and he would be working out, you know, with all, all the students too. They're like, yeah, that's professor, whatever his name is. But this dude was absolutely shredded and he was really deep into research. And back then that wasn't as common. Yeah, you're right. Maybe social media have, has high right, right. Um, but it's really interesting. I think people, they used to think bodybuilder and think dumb meathead, but most right. bodybuilders, especially the successful ones that I've ever come into or interviewed are incredibly intelligent individuals and they, and they look at things and more than, you know, just, you know, throwing some, you know, obviously chemicals in their body. Cause I mean, sure. You know, if you're going to be professional, like you've got to be chemically enhanced and that's no secret. Right. Well, I mean, with that bar, you know, it's, it's, you know, bodybuilders have gotten so good at the professional level that, you know, those, those are all the tools and all the prerequisites, but above and beyond that, you're right. I mean, they have to figure it out and it's almost like, uh, you know, bodybuilders are excellent problem solvers and they're off, they're operating just like 
outside of the edge of what, you know, we know what to do based on science, especially in exercise science. There's just still a lot, you know, we don't know. And the body is so adaptive. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of things will work, but, you know, what's optimal for that person under those conditions? And I feel like, um, you know, bodybuilders are, uh, they specialize really in, uh, in figuring that type of stuff out, the successful ones anyways. Yeah, they're sometimes the original guinea pigs. And then, you know, yeah. later, on, later on, they you know, the for research sure. comes out, bodybuilders like, I've been doing that for 20 years, you know, what, what's- Right, I could have told you that. Uh, so <laughs> no your research, uh, ex examine.com, first of all, I'm, I'm writing my second book and you guys- are cool. amazing at the amount of research that I can get in there. So anybody that doesn't know examine.com, you can type in any supplement in the world pretty much, and it's going to pull up all this research and see, you know, you guys often do summaries and all sorts of different things. Yeah. Um, and you, and you say that you're, you know, unbiased research. What, what's your role um, with examine and two for a follow-up? How do you actually keep it unbiased? Because you also do some summaries on there as well. Yeah. Um, well, my role at, at Examine um, is a researcher. It's a different type of researcher. I'm not, you know, knocking out genes and, uh, you know, doing mouse studies and, and whatnot, uh, right. you know, like I do over here at Ohio State, uh, but basically uh, analyzing, interpreting and, and summarizing uh, research. And gosh, we just have an awesome uh, team over there. And uh you know, if like people could see the the internal back and forth and, and the, you know, the process that just gets anything that we put out there, out there, uh, it's amazing. Um, uh, Saul and Kamal have just assembled an awesome team. And uh, yeah, we summarize a, a lot of research and this was all born out of, you know, does this work? Should I take this? Can I believe this study? And, um, you know, pervasive in the fitness industry are studies that are, you know, slightly misrepresented and, and, you know, sometimes they find their ways to product labels. And, you know, sometimes that study was funded, uh, you know, by industry. Um, that's not necessarily, um, that doesn't necessarily disqualify a study because there's just not a lot of money in supplement research, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. somebody has to pay for it and the, the uh, people that make the supplements have an interest in funding it. But um, it's just, uh, so yeah, we do a lot of things over there and that's the examine part. Uh, the second part of your question, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, no, how, how you, you guys do summarize things and, and how do yeah. you keep it unbiased? Because as far as, far as oh, right. that I've read, it, it is relatively unbiased. And, it, you know, I think that often people will put their um, opinion, whether it's subconscious or conscious, especially into summarizing something. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, we try to maintain uh, a distance between ourselves and the supplement industry in general. So we don't recommend brands. We want to be 100% independent. So that way we can take a research, good or bad or otherwise, as it pertains to a certain supplement and weigh in on it. And mm -hmm. and that's the key. I mean, that is 100% the core of our existence. And um, I, we have people, we have, you know, people that specialize in statistics and just sort of analyzing the, the nuance of the data and really looking at the numbers uh, beyond what has been, you know, even published in the paper. Like we might read a paper and it was published in a, a decent peer reviewed journal, but, you know, somebody on the team looks at it and they're like, eh, you know, we just, we just don't buy that. And there's a lot of internal discussion and, you know, we put these concerns out there. Um, and if we, you know, or 
tied up with a supplement company in any way, shape or form, we wouldn't be able to do that. We'd uh, destroy a lot of uh, relationships, uh, you know, doing it that way. So we, yeah. we try to not try to, that's, you know, the core of our existence is that we're 100% independent, uh, you know, from the supplement industry that allows us to fairly weigh in on, you know, on supplements. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's a very valid point because, you know, you see all sorts of different websites like, oh, look at our research and the research is, you know, on their specific supplement that they're selling. So it's, yeah, you're right. It's not, not that it's not valid, but it seems a little disingenuous, you know, like sponsored yeah. by the dairy council telling you to drink milk sponsored by, you know, some <laughs> e protein company doing like a documentary. It's like, you know, like whatever, like you, you can find instances of all of this. Um, you know, so I, I really appreciate what you guys are doing now. When you first started there, actually, you know, let's, let's go back. What was the first supplement you ever took in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I'm sure early, you know, protein powders and protein powders, you know, they, protein has gotten so much better. My goodness. Um, I remember the the protein bars used to taste like just cardboard, yeah, you know, well, like um, I, I'll say it, the power bar bars originally. Like yeah. they were, they were nasty. Like it looked like a paste just kind of <laughs> smashed together. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, so protein supplements and I, in the earliest, I really started thing. I started taking at earnest, I think was creatine and mm-hmm. I, I dabbled with H and B uh, for me, it did absolutely nothing. Um, and for probably most people, right. um, you know, and if you're a trauma patient, uh, it, it may work under, you know, extreme catabolic conditions, creatine, you know, I, I'm not sure I was really young when I took it a lot and I'm not sure if I'm a responder or not to tell you mm-hmm. the truth. Um, you know, so yeah, I'd say that, um, creatine for sure. That was around the time when, um, I think EAS and another company had the exclusive patents on it. So it was, it was phosphogen actually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I'm not sure how much mileage I got out of that supplement, but I sure spent a lot of money on it. <laughs> I think that was one of the first ones I took. Um, yeah, I, I remember they had like a like a, a rub on creatine as well. Oh wow, like, transdermal. One point, yeah, and I was like doing this in the locker room, like I put it on my biceps beforehand, which really doesn't yeah. make much sense. Uh, so you know, like playing hockey, don't really need biceps on the ice but whatever sure uh, like doing doing all that sort of shit so it, it was pretty crazy the amount of things that they had with that um and you talk about non-responders what do you mean by that people have not non-responses to taking supplements yeah no doubt you know uh across the broad swath of individuals you know our biochemistry and how we metabolize different things is going to differ a lot and that's you know been much more well studied in the, uh, in the pharmaceutical and medical industry, but creatine in particular, um, it seems that like some people just respond amazing to it and and they are able to absorb it really well. And and others just don't. And I don't know that there's ever been an explanation for that. I know there's been some theories floated out there and Mm -hmm. gosh, I think, I don't remember, um, who did this work, but some of the earliest studies used, um, I think they're actually taking it in tea or coffee, which had caffeine. And then I, I think, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a theory was floated out there that possibly the, the caffeine interfered with the absorption. And then, you know, later on, uh, researchers found that spiking your insulin really helps. So I was, you know, taking it with grape juice. I think it honestly, when it worked best for me was when they came out with a micronized version 
and uh, this was during the the bodybuilding competition days, I would just take, I think it was about 10 grams and the micronized uh, stuff dissolved a lot better in water. So I would just dump that into a gallon of water and just drink that gallon throughout the day. And I did notice an increase in, in muscle fullness, um, you know, when I did that. Now, now, whether that translated to more strength or not, it's hard to say. But um, yeah, I guess we're going back into the archives here. I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't taken creatine in some time. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I, I, a lot of supplements and different things. And and now, and you can probably speak to this. There's there's all sorts of different research on on cognition and creatine, and I mean. What, yeah, are, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, on using it for other ways? Because I know I take creatine and you're right, I think the micronized version and they have like crealkaline and all these different things. Um, yeah. And it's supposed to be, you know, within the cell more and didn't like bloat you and which now I guess, you know, I think that's probably, you know, the misconception that's been debunked. So, um, you know, what are these other uses of creatine that people wouldn't expect and are they valid? You know, that's a great question. And um, I'm not super familiar with uh, with the research on turf uses of creatine. Um, it, mm -hmm. Actually, if I wanted to, to really dive into that fast, I just go straight to examine.com. <laughs> I think we have look at that. Uh, look at that. maybe 700 plus uh, citations on creatine. I'm, I'm really interested in that, though. Um, like, what is it about creatine? Like, why adding that higher energy phosphate? benefits uh the cns and uh you know maybe that tells us something that can be harnessed you know uh you know just for cognitive boosting pur purposes but you know in the context of aging and, and cognitive decline um that's a really interesting space i don't know i'm not familiar enough with the studies to really comment uh, on where that's going but uh yeah i'm just kind of watching the field from afar with interest yeah what now as far as supplementation what are you excited about, you know, when, when you're looking at it and you're, and you're doing this research, is there anything right now where you're like, wow, th this could be a game changer? You know, it's funny. Um, I, th I tend to take just off the cuff. I'll just order a new supplement after I summarize it, uh, on, uh, on examine. Um, gosh, I, I mean, in the supplement space, I don't, I don't know if anything really is, a game changer. I, I mean, it's important to, uh, I, I mean, most people, you know, know this, but supplements are just that there are supplements, you know, to everything else. So I think, uh, you know, when, when the nutrition and lifestyle and rest and, and all these things align, that's when, you know, supplements, uh, can really, really shine. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I, I'm, I'm not super excited about any one thing, uh, in particular. Um, I know, not to throw a wet blanket on the on the supplement industry, uh, they are useful. And I, and I think once you have like the core aspects that you need to get taken care of, taken care of, um, you know, rest, lifestyle, nutrition, all that, uh, you know, then supplements can be useful and they can give people an edge, um, you know, just in general. If, like there's somebody has a vitamin D deficiency, obviously supplement vitamin D. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, I'm not particularly fired up about uh, <laughs> about any one thing. So you, you can't take something where it increases your absorption of you know protein by a thousand percent or anything crazy. Oh like that. man, you know it's funny that I work at Examine now, um, and, and I'm sure everybody's been in this situation. But uh, going back uh, to one of the earlier Arnold Expos, they have you know the Arnold Fitness Expo in Columbus here and. 
you know, I, I live just mm -hmm. on the east side of Columbus and uh, went to one of the earliest ex earlier expos. And I spoke to a, a supplement rep. I'm not going to mention the company because, you know, I don't want to. Uh, we're independent, right? Good or bad. We're independent. Yeah, exactly. And um, this guy talked me into buying this uh, supplement. It was, it was kind of pricey, but, you know, it was at a discount. So I bought like eight bottles, <laughs> uh, you know, 3000 percent greater protein synthesis. The studies are just right here. And I, you know, wasn't reading studies at the time, but I looked at the back of the label. I'm like, wow, there's like eight or ten citations there. This stuff must be awesome. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't even get a placebo effect. And so th that's, you know, that one time kind of stuck in my brain. I'm like, all right, you know, um, there needs to be something, something more in terms of the vetting process, you know, when it comes to making supplement purchases or deciding what to take. I mean, people have limited resources and they want to allocate those in the most productive way possible. And, uh, awesome that examine came into existence, you know, at some point many years later and uh, that I'm uh, involved in that in a small part. So just, yeah, I think that stuck yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Set me on that. Yeah, I, I could see the, the, the snake oil salesman, right? And and you're right. It's yes. kind of like the wild, wild west out there and, and people are trying to sell all sorts of different things. And I think that's the human nature, right? We want that quick fix. We want to be able to like, oh, this is my perfect body in a bottle. This is, you know, my brain in a bottle or, or sleep or, or everything else. Is, is there anything that you feel like people are, are, are abusing right now as far as what, what you've seen that doesn't seem to be as valid? Well, um, I think sometimes there can be, um, especially with protein supplements, um, you know, if you get enough protein, you know, from whole foods and, you know, the different people argue that, uh, that that could be ideal versus protein powders. I, I feel like, well, in the fitness industry, I don't want to go too much far down a rabbit hole here, but, you know, uh, the, the guiding principle that we've all been taught to believe is muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein breakdown on the other side. And there's this little teeter totter, right? And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. muscle protein synthesis is up, muscle protein breakdown is down good to go. We're just going to grow. Right. And, you know, the, the supplement, uh, industry has been sort of, um, designed, you know, uh, to influence, influence that equilibrium. And so protein supplements, of course, well, you know, whey protein increases protein synthesis more than others. Uh, you measure, you know, you take the supplement, you measure acute protein synthesis, you know, two hours, maybe 24 hours later. Um, the physiological stimulus matters too, right? Like are you in the train state or not? But, uh, that is to say that, you know, there's a lot of research that looks at acute protein synthesis. And, you know, it's published out there. The supplement companies use that to market, you know, their uh, particular supplement. I mean, we're talking about protein supplements here. Uh, muscle protein synthesis goes up. So good to go. You're going to grow. But I think what's lost on, you know, a lot of uh, well, me, too. I really I learned about this the hard way. And I can tell you a story about that is that um, muscle protein breakdown is, is part of the process by which you grow. It's necessary. If you shut that down, like muscle withers away and dies, literally. And I mean, just wrap your head around that. It's like we're kind of programmed, and I am too, um, to think in terms of, you know, we have to induce an anabolic state and keep it all the time, you know, to grow muscle. But in reality, um, if we were able to do with supplements what we wanted to do, which is, you know, what we think we want to do, shut down muscle protein breakdown, 
like our muscles would just wither away to nothing <laughs> and, and just be completely broken. Wow. So um, that, to me, that's a, just a really interesting uh, dynamic. And, and that whole, I mean, you know, you see it in different places. Um, the whole dynamic muscle protein synthesis versus muscle protein breakdown is used to sell, you know, quite a bit of supplements. So hmm. not that it's not important. Right. I'm sorry, is, is there, yeah, is there, is there something that, um, I mean, I know like the anabolic windows have been debunked. Yeah. Like, we'll talk about that here. too. Right. You know, so, um, I, I do kind of want to get into that. So like we're looking at that and then loading protein pre peri or, you know, during, during the workout or, or post and, and carbohydrates, you see all these different things, right? Especially to your point that the supplement labeling is, is going to have, I remember back in the day, um, I was speaking to Alan Aragon about this, like, uh, dextrose, like he was throwing the gummy bears in his mouth afterwards. He's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. even I was wrong about that. You know, he's looking and he's, he's, you know, doing analyses of all sorts of different studies too. So, um, is there a specific timing that, that needs to be hit? And to your point, like maybe it, should we not be having a, a bunch of protein afterwards and maybe utilize that damaging response? That is an awesome question that nobody really has the answer to uh, right now. I have a, a view on, on that. I know you had Brad Schoenfeld on on your podcast, and he did uh, with some other people a, a really nice meta analysis that looked at that. And I think he concluded that there may be not so much a window, but I, I think in his words, more of a barn door. And um, mm -hmm. you know, I just don't know. And, and here's why. Um, you know, you, you, you set up these studies and you go look at different training stimuli and, you know, different amounts of protein, different types of protein, and then you can, you know, measure protein synthesis. A lot of, oftentimes people do that, you know, minutes to hours after the training stimulus or, or protein, well, protein supplement, um, even out to 24 hours or more. Uh, but the studies that have looked at for correlations between acute uh, increases uh, so in other words, short-term increases in protein synthesis don't always correlate to, to longer-term changes in, in, you know, muscle growth. And, and why is that? Well, there's certainly an anabolic window if you want to just uh, call anabolism a spike in, in muscle protein synthesis. Absolutely, 100%. Now, where, where I'm, nobody knows is whether that's important for long-term changes and, and muscle growth and, you know, and hypertrophy. Um, that's the, the $10 million question uh, in the supplement industry. Now, um, we know a lot about the signaling in terms of what's happening in the muscle cell, you know, acutely after taking, taking protein, muscle protein synthesis goes up, muscle protein breakdown goes down, but extrapolating those changes to what occurs, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks later on a, on a time scale that muscle actually significantly changes is, is really, is really tough. Now, um, mm -hmm. the other thing to consider, um, and this goes, you know, I sort of focus on, on cell biology in my research and I, I tend to view this from a cell biology standpoint. Um, so let's say you train, right? You, you've done a workout, you take a protein shake and uh, for proteins to be made, there's a messenger RNA, you know, a gene gets activated, a messenger RNA is made, that gets shuttled out into the cytosol of the cell, and that messenger RNA is read by ribosomes, right? 
And in that process, uh, we call it protein synthesis. It's mRNA translation. The mRNAs are being translated, making more protein. Well, acutely, um, say you have, you have a protein shake after a workout, um, the rate of protein translation is going to increase quite a bit. But here's the thing. You can only translate the amount of mRNAs that are there. And for a cell to uh, activate protein synthesis, we, we call it de novo. So to send a transcription factor to the nucleus where it binds its you know, section of DNA, cause the mRNA to be made, that mRNA needs to be then processed, packaged, spliced, and then shuttled out into the ribosomes you know, to be translated. That takes, you know, for the average garden variety cell, 16 to 24 hours. So mm -hmm. what we're measuring um, when we look at acute muscle protein synthesis is a boost in mRNA translation. Now, uh, you know, keep that in mind and let's fast forward to what happens, you know, 12, 16 weeks, uh, after 12, 16 weeks of training and eating protein, um, you're looking at, pro I would argue, more important than the boost in, in protein synthesis um, is actual uh, anabolic gene expression. So what genes are you turning on over the long term that are generating those mRNAs that are building muscle? And, and that's where the disconnect lies, and which is precisely why I can't give you an answer for the <laughs> anabolic window. Um, the question in my view is, you know, does that boost and that transient boost in mRNA translation or protein synthesis in minutes to hours to, you know, uh, several hours after you have your protein shake influence um, long-term steady state changes in gene expression? Um, that culminate in increases in muscle mass. That is 100% the question that we need to focus on. And nobody's designed an experiment that I know of uh, to, uh, to specifically address that yet. Not that that's an easy, easy thing to do. Um, yeah. So that's a really long-winded way of saying, I don't know. Um, but certainly <laughs> um, it can't hurt to stack the deck in your favor, right? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I, I appreciate it, a long-winded answer because not just a no. Like, there's there's got to be a reason. Uh, so there's nobody right now. And I was going to ask this follow-up question. There's there's nobody that is right now specifically looking at this, as far as you know. Well, it's a it's a hard thing to study. Um, there's there's a couple of things you know we need to keep in mind. You know, when we're designing an experiment like that in free living humans, right? I mean, if we could just Actually, we need to just sequester people for 12 weeks and just get it done. You know, somebody just yeah. needs to uh, take it for the team. But free living humans, I mean, you, you might have a late night. I mean, you, you know, the baby might be crying all night. You might only get three hours of sleep and, and have to just kind of gut it out through the next day. And, you know, there's these, these changes in, in environment that we can't control. And layer on top of that, um, that the protein synthesis machinery is opportunistic, right? When everything, uh, when, when conditions are permissive and you have a lot of mRNAs, you know, made and ready to translate uh, and that, you know, the energy state and the cell is conducive for that. Yeah, you're going to make a lot of protein, but, you know, protein synthesis, the protein synthesis machinery is, is very needy. Um, you know, you need the right nutrients, the right amount of energy levels. And, you know, let's you know, say you had an intermittent faster. There's just so many variables that you have to look at, you know, that culminate and, you know, and, and whether somebody grows muscle tissue or not. So it's a difficult thing to study, but I, I, it's, you know, not impossible 
Um, it just would require yeah. like, um, you know, humans being sequestered in some kind of metabolic chamber for extended periods of time. Not very practical. Um, and it's very hard to get a mouse to bench or squat, um, I'm sure. <laughs> And their metabolism are different. So yeah, it's tough to extrapolate. Yeah. yeah when you really dig into it, it's, um, it's a difficult problem, uh, you know, to address specifically, but then again, like, is that just an academic exercise? We, we sort of know we can extrapolate, you know, based on the body of literature out there, um, you know, things that are good for muscle growth and, and do them right. So getting enough rest, um, you know, getting good nutrition, making sure, you know, you're, you're getting enough protein, those sorts of things. Um, interesting thought experiment that, that I think about is let's say that you, you train in a completely fasted state, you know, and you continue fasting maybe for 24 hours after that. It's, you know, a very, um, under normal conditions, it would be a very muscle growth stimulating, you know, workout. Does that throw a wrench? Um, you know, that singular event when the conditions weren't right for, you know, for making lots of proteins, um, would that throw a wrench in your long-term gains? Another hard thing to study, but I think it's an interesting um, yeah. thought experiment because if, if training in the completely fasted state negates some of your long-term gains, then sure, that, that suggests that there's some kind of anabolic window, but as, you know, Brad said on your podcast, it may be more of a more of a barn door. So it's, it's such an interesting right. and contentious topic, actually different people have different opinions on it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just try to try to think about all the variables and not weigh in just yet. <laughs> yeah. I would like to see a, a mouth squat or bench press. I think Ratatouille or, um, Stuart Little maybe could do it, but uh, those are just cartoon characters. So, you know, there, there was this study, I was actually laughing when I was reading the methods, and this is terrible, you know, these poor rats, they, they put the rat in a kind of sled uh, where it was loaded with weight and they shocked it in the butt, which caused the, uh, you know, muscles to contract and it actually, uh, you know, contracted against the load. So that's, that's how they were doing squats. So it's not a perfect model, <laughs> not voluntary exercises. Wow. For sure. Wow. <clears throat> <laughs> That's definitely involuntary for the rats. Uh, speaking of that, when, when we're doing the, these rodent models and things, can we look at these experiments that, that are done on rats or mice and, and completely say that this is going to work on humans and, and uh, follow up to that? Why are we you know, using rodents in, in particular? I'd probably you know, ease, but um, you know, is that directly correlated with potentially going to work in humans? 100% no. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I think there's a, somebody has a Twitter thread out there that's some like in mice, you know, there's all these, this, these groundbreaking results, you know, in mice and, um, people have taken that to be a disqualifier. Um, and you know, there's, there's caveats, even more than caveats. Sometimes you just straight up can't translate the results of a rodent model to humans, but they do have their purpose. Now, um, you know, as a researcher, if I wanted to study, like you know, I had some kind of hypothesis, I'm testing that this metabolic pathway was important. I would probably start, you know, in, in, in cultured cells and just kind of work out the details. And the next question is, well, does this work in vivo? 
Now, the advantage to rodent models is they're they're you know completely inbred, so they're bred to the point uh, inbred to the point of genetic homogeneity, and at that point you introduce like a mutant gene or you know just you change them in some way. So you've only changed one thing genetically, but you know their background is identical. Now that makes it a, a super useful research tool. If you want to study the effects of you know this gene on a certain process, you knock it out and you see what happens. Um, that's great for the purpose of you know uh, studying that process. But where it breaks down is the difference in inbred rodent models to like free living humans. And I, I joke all the time, I'm not advocating for this at all. You can't make transgenic people, <laughs> right? right, right, right. Um, and you can't, uh, you can't do uh, the type of genetic editing you can do in a rodent model. That's not to say that rodent models aren't useful, though. I think they get um, outside of the research uh, community. Um, and, you know, the researchers that are actually using that tool know their limitations, but when you you have this groundbreaking study in, in mice, you know, they say they found a new way to treat cancer in mice and then the media picks it up and, you know, it's out there. And uh, I think that's where the context is lost. So in vivo models are immensely useful and important. Uh, they just need to be, uh, you know, interpreted uh, carefully in, in regards to how their implications, you know, for humans. Um, and, and that's when, you know, the human part of the research starts with randomized controlled trials and observational studies and, and things like that to validate, you know, some of this stuff uh, that the researchers have done, you know, in rodents and simpler models. So it does have a role, uh, but yeah, there's, there's no one-to-one -one extrapolation for the most part. Yeah. I mean, you know, people, they see in confirmation biases, huge, which is one of the things why I like yeah. to examine so much because you guys have just research upon research. And then you were also looking at studies, you know, as you said before, that, that there's, a, there's a certain, you know, scale, if you will, or, or grade that you're having to give them. Now, if somebody is going to look at a study that comes out, especially nowadays, uh, you know, COVID or a new study every single day, <clears throat> like they looked at this or whatever, or, um, you know, being being obese causes, you know, higher incidences of, of COVID, which is, is not secret or, or saying like underweight, whatever. Sure. But there's a, a lot of these studies aren't being peer reviewed. So when somebody's looking at a study, you know, specifically, hopefully they go beyond the headline. What are some markers that they should be looking at to see like, wait, this, this is valid. And then how do they follow up from that to, you know, maybe find another study? Gosh, that's a great point. And, and you know, with in the COVID era, um, you know, uh, the preprint servers have gotten so busy. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, if say I'm doing a study and, you know, working on a couple right now, you know, you get all the data together, you write the paper and then you submit it to a journal and uh, at the journal, it's going to undergo peer review. And, you know, during peer review, uh, there's going to be a, a panel of people that, you know, are familiar with the field. And they're either going to accept the paper outright, which <laughs> rarely happens in, uh, in uh, the research world. Um, they're going to reject it. They're going to say, yeah, thanks for sending it. Uh, they might offer, offer some helpful suggestions, but like we don't ever want to see this again, <laughs> you know you know, move on or they're going to accept it, you know, pending revisions. And a lot of the times they'll want more experiments, more, more clarification. And that part of it, um, 
make science a self-correcting process. You know, if it if it doesn't fly or, you know, researchers are trying to, if there's some of that going on, actually, you know, we're, uh, you know, a researcher will misrepresent their data. Usually it gets caught during peer review. Now, on the other side of things, you, you, we have this pandemic, you know, and, and the need for to get as much information out there as quickly as possible in terms of, you know, how you can fight COVID is all of a sudden center stage. And um, uh, one pathway to getting your work out there is to submit it to a preprint server. Essentially, you just put the paper together, you upload it to the preprint server and it's done, right? I mean, you could publish that the earth is flat and nobody's peer reviewing that and it's not getting, you know, a question by anybody. And so that's where you have to be really careful, uh, you know, with COVID studies or any other, if it's on a, uh, on a preprint, uh, if it's published on a preprint server, um, the level of scrutiny uh, when looking at the study should be, you know, much, much, much higher. Um, and, and in those situations, I recommend that, you know, don't take the paper for its word, actually look at the data um, and, and, you know, think, does this make sense in light of, you know, what else is out there? And it's not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, even for people uh, that are that are immersed in that field, um, I think that's where uh, examine really shines. Um, you know, we have a team of people that are able to parse through that and uh, and weigh in on it. So, yeah. How do you know if it's a if it's a preprint versus because you know obviously a lot of people are you know taking these. I've seen this all, all the time now. It's, uh, you know, I think sometimes, yeah, obviously, people are very opp opportunistic, but like they'll do a, a screenshot of a headline and then a study sure. and then like show somebody eating a <clears throat> damn donut or something. But like, look, I told you, like, oh, of course, we, we know they probably shouldn't eat donuts, right? Uh, but like they'll, they'll do that and then everybody, the, then there will just be this mass influx uh, of commentary. And then I'll, I'll often say like, hey, can you link that study source or whatever. And sometimes yeah, I'll yeah. work on, sometimes I won't. But how do you know if it's preprint versus peer reviewed? Well, there's a couple preprint servers out there. And um, gosh, it's a good question. I, I'm trying to uh, think of a paper where it's somewhere on the paper, it will be identified as such. Now, there's mm -hmm. some confusion. You also see that uh, papers that have been peer reviewed, but not edited yet by the journal that will say published online ahead of print. So in that instance, uh, the paper has been peer reviewed and embedded by the reviewers, but it just hasn't been gone over with that fine tooth comb uh, by the editorial staff at the journal, you know, to make it perfect in its final form. Um, so, I mean, if it's published in a, in a journal that, that publishes papers, I, I don't know of any journals that also have a preprint arm. Um, so, and there's only a handful of preprint servers that I know of, there's probably more now, you know, in the COVID area era. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really important to identify uh, what you're dealing with up front and um, published online ahead of print does not mean it's a preprint that'll be put out by, you know, a regular journal that publishes stuff. Uh, right. But that's the first thing you should, uh, you should look for is whether it's, you know, been uploaded to a preprint server. And there should be some uh, information somewhere in the PDF that identifies the paper as such. I'm just not thinking of uh, specific examples right now, but it'll be there. It should be in the headline or at least the, the subtitle, right? You know, it, it literally, yeah. people are, are only going to read that. And, you know, I, I do TV and, and media a lot and I, I'm, I have to write some of these headlines and I get it, you know, so I understand that yeah. 
at least in the subtitle, you know, you could say, hey, donuts are actually healthy. That, you know, <laughs> this was not peer reviewed, like something like that. Right underneath it would be great because we know that people are only going to read the, the first paragraph, if not the only title. Um, it's, it's like a newspaper attraction. They're not they're not going to put that on the first page. They always put it like later on, like, oh, we apologize. You know, <laughs> yeah, but well, yeah, that should be on there. Specifically in the case of media headlines, I mean, you know, 100 percent. Um, gosh, I was, you know, was thumbing through my Google News feed and um, gosh, it was a covid related study. Um, and, and the headline was that uh, this uh, this strain of covid like completely escapes, uh, you know, neutralization by antibodies or something to that effect. I'm murdering the right. title. But it was like straight up 100% doom and gloom, like the pandemic is fine. The, you know, the, the COVID apocalypse is here. And then, you know, I'm like, wow, that's, that's insane. Like, how is everybody not talking about this? And of course, I clicked on it. They got me. I clicked on it. And um, it was an in vitro study, you know, uh, where they were just actually it wasn't even in vitro. It was in silico. They were using computer modeling um, to... Uh, to, you know, to look at that. And they found this theoretical situation where this, this COVID variant had completely escaped, you know, any protection from antibodies. So it was a bunch of BS basically. Um, but that was the headline and people clicked on it. And, and you know, if you're like me, you're, you're busy, you're working on other stuff and you're just thumbing through your Google news feed. You know, I could have posted that on Twitter, Twitter, and they could have spread just like what, excuse me, wildfire yeah. all over the world. So yeah, it's very, uh, I guess that just, you know, taking a step back, it's really important to, you know, take, be skeptical uh, about where your information is coming from, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, headlines getting out there in the media. I think, uh, you know, that, that's an issue, especially, especially these days. I mean, it was nice when the, the biggest thing we had to worry about was whether this really created 3000% greater protein synthesis, right? Now you're like, well, <laughs> This is going to wipe out my, you know, my, my whole city. So yeah, gosh, how times have changed. Yeah. You know, you just, you just wanted to eat that nasty protein bar and, and right. Yeah. Things were simple. Your protein tastes like cardboard, but you're going to grow, you know, you're not thinking, uh-huh. you know, extinction, extinction level events, yeah. that sort yeah. of thing. So All right, cool. I, I got one more question for you is I know you need to have some, you know, um, rats and mice do some bench presses and backflips. And yeah, I got to talk to the mice today or we're due for a visit. <laughs> uh, so what, what do you think that, um, people could be doing that um, is so simple for their health that they're not doing right now. I know obviously examine, you can go and, you know, type in a bunch of things. And I mean, hell, I even saw a bunch of research on, on blueberries and breaking down vegan versus carnivore versus all sorts of things. So it's not all supplements on there. And there's very good reviews on that. But what you said, you pointed at this earlier, like lifestyle factors and then supplements right. are important. What are, what are these factors? Um, that people need to uh, kind of wrap their heads around more before, you know, popping a pill. Well, gosh, yeah, it's the, the fundamental stuff is, is what people need to worry about. But I'll tell you that the space that I'm, you know, kind of excited about and, and, and uh, really paying close attention to are, are the research on uh, nutrient uh, restriction. And just to g- give you some context, I came, you know, from a bodybuilding background 
and uh, the uh, the goal is to be anabolic all the time, right? You, you protein synthesis needs to be turned on all the time. And then when the mTORC, you know, the mTORC complex was was discovered, you know, that regulates protein synthesis, you're like, oh man, you just have to turn this on all the time and you know keep protein breakdown low. And uh, you know, I, I don't think that's ideal for for any human. Um, I also don't think it's ideal to fast for you know, 72 days uh, to maximize autophagy and try to squeeze 30% more life out like they did with the, uh, you know, like the worms and the, and the Petri dishes. Um, so balance, uh, you know, is one thing. I, I think you can do it both ways. I, I don't think we were designed to be in the postprandial state or the fed state, you know, 24 seven. So, you know, you know, maybe a, a, a younger guy who's got a, you know, metabolism that just, you know, burns at light speed, um, they need all those extra nutrients. But I think as, as people, you know, start to get into the 30s and 40s and later, um, just balancing out, um, you know, acute periods of calorie restriction with getting the fuel you need, you know, to grow and to respond to your training, um, that is huge. I, I, you know, pay a lot of attention to that. Um, on my end, it's a practical thing. I may get wrapped up in an experiment and, you know, I'm glad I don't eat seven meals anymore because I would have skipped four of them. Um, so yeah. that specific aspect, um, the whole aging, longevity, autophagy, proteostasis, that area, that's really interesting to me. But going back to like to more the 10,000 foot level in response to your to your question there. Yeah, just lifestyle. So, you know, nutrition, rest. And, and like your emotional state, all this stuff matters. And I guess this gets back to our, our, uh, you know, discussion on, um, you know, the anabolic window and, you know, whether that's, uh, important, you know, for long-term changes and hypertrophy, you want to keep, you know, just not talking about, you know, your brain, but you, in terms of muscle growth, uh, you want everything to line up. So your body is able, you know, to grow and respond to, you know, that training stimulus, over time. And so for that, you know, uh, actually we have a fitness guided examine where we talk about a lot of this stuff and how holistic and integrated it is. I mean, we get into sleep and, and, and nutrition and, and those are the core elements, you know, you, you gotta have all that taken care of. Um, and I'm the worst offender of this. I mean, I was in the lab until midnight, you know, last night I got up around four this morning to get a workout in and here I am talking to you. So I'm, you know, <laughs> Get rest, people. Uh, but yeah. uh, and I will later. I'm going to have to, or you know, my brain will stop functioning. But right. um, it's important to have all of this stuff, uh, you know, lined up. Your nutrition, your rest, your overall lifestyle. Um, it's easier said than done, and it's not simple. But you know, once you have these things lined up, uh, you know, then you add the supplements. And I think. Um, you know, as far as examine goes as a website, we're really evolving into, yes, we're, we're super interested in supplements, but, but also just health and wellness topics. Mm -hmm. We've really broadened into that space. And, you know, the questions that we ponder are, you know, does this certain uh, intervention, you know, intermittent fasting, you know, take your pick, you know, does that work? Um, yeah. so stay tuned. Um, you know, we're, this is the type of stuff that we, uh, we work on, you know, day in, day out, there's a lot of internal dialogue and, uh, we're just really excited, uh, you know, just like everybody else out there to figure this stuff out and, uh, yeah. and, and use it, you know, to get bigger, faster, stronger, healthier, whatever your goal is. Um, 
you know, I have a, I have a four-year-old, so I need to be able to beat him in a race into advanced, you know, age. So I'm, you know, partly training for that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, tra- you're training to keep beating your kid <laughs> in a, well, in a yeah, race. You know, that is. In a, in a race. Yeah. It is good. It's good for him, right? You know, he's going to create that stress and, he, and he's going to have that determined focus. Uh, yeah. To your point, you guys do have a lot of summaries on there. Uh, and I, I mentioned this, I've been using examine a lot for research on my book, but I mean, there, there's different summaries on sleep and it goes into why we sleep and then maybe what supplements are, are, are working. And then um, there's cognition, there's all sorts of different things. Um, so I definitely uh, tell people to check out examine and Bill, where can people find you? Well, I'm on, uh, I don't have much of a presence on social media. I do have a Facebook account. I believe it's bill.willis1, uh, same on Instagram. Um, <laughs> anybody has any questions, uh, you can you can hit me up. I, I, I will respond. But yeah, I'm uh, not super active on, on social media. I don't even know if I've ever made an Instagram post. I do have an account though, so... Good for you. <laughs> I mean, that, that probably speaks to your... Uh mental sanity because it, it, it can drive you a little bit crazy ha- having well I, I tell you it's um, <laughs> no, for sure. it's really easy uh to go down you know the rabbit hole and you know i think every time we scroll past something new we get mm-hmm. this little tiny squirt of dopamine in our brain and it becomes you know all of a sudden like oh wow i just lost mm-hmm. half an hour and you know i need to do this and that and the, and the other and so um i mean social media is great I, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if, you know, the internet, uh, didn't exist and, and all that. But, um, yeah, I, um, you know, especially when I get really, uh, really busy in the lab and, you know, close to getting a paper out, I kind of tune that out a little bit, but I am accessible if anybody wants to hit me up or has any questions. I'd right, appreciate it. And everybody make sure to check out examine.com. This was another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y, be a part of the future. Cheers.